Well, 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 good morning, church. Whew. So um, in our journey uh, that we have been on for a long time now, uh, 15 plus years, uh, as we've traveled through the historical context of scripture uh, and allowed the unfolding story of God to uh, become a story we become familiar with and, and, and begin to understand as we've traveled through, we find ourselves now uh, in the historical space uh, in which Paul, who is one of the authors of some of the New Testament, uh, is writing letters from prison in Rome uh, to different churches and individuals uh, in his journey. And so we are in the letter that he is writing to Timothy, one of his disciples, uh, really his protege, his, uh, his son uh, in the faith. And, and he's writing this letter to Timothy specifically uh, because he has sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus, a church that is very dear to Paul. Um, to go and set some things right in that church in order that they might live out the purpose that God has made both the church in Ephesus and his church in general, his people for. They are missing that purpose because of some things within that church that need uh, course correction. And Timothy's been sent to do this. So Paul is writing this letter to him as a letter of encouragement, as a letter of instruction, as a, as a letter of, 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 um, exhortation to Timothy to say, man, man, go do this. Uh, you got this. You are well equipped for this. And, and remember, these are the things you need to deal with. And this is what is going to be consequential likely for you if you're going to step into this hornet's nest a little bit. But, but it's very important that we do this because if we don't, then the entire purpose or aim of the people of God on this planet is going to be at, at best diminished, at worst lost. And what is this aim? We last week were reminded of this. Uh, the week before, Brady preached on this. The aim of our being on this planet as the people of God is love. It is to extend, to display, to engage with one another and the culture around us in a way that extends and displays the love of God toward them so that they would know his love, understand his love, and experience the benefits of his love in all of its categories. Last week, as we walked into the first uh, unpacking now of Paul saying to Timothy, okay, if we're going to do this, if, if you're going to behave in a way that is going to allow for you as the people of God to, to display and extend the love of God to each other and to the world, then it's got to start here. The love you extend has to include the truths of God as they stand, even when those truths seem to oppose the truths that we either as followers of Jesus or as a culture that doesn't know Jesus come up with because they meet our experiences, feelings, sensibilities, preferences, et cetera, et cetera, right? When we have come to conclude something to be true, to be just, to be right, to be good, to be helpful, to be filling in the blank, that it's, that it's truth. If it indeed opposes the truth of God, then boy, we better hold to the truth of God. Why? Because we will never love each other well, or better put, with the love of God, if we are loving each other with truths that aren't God's. Because any truth that is not God's is not true, and therefore will not lead to our well-being. Even though we might feel like it's leading to our well-being, even though it seems like it's leading to our well-being, what we have to come to understand is that we cannot love each other well and we cannot love the world well if we love each other with a truth that is not God's truth. That all sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, yes, no, not. Oh, I love it until some of the truths of God oppose the concluded truths of one another. 
and I'm bringing to you as your dear brother in Christ and you, my dear brother or sister in Christ, a, a truth of God. And you're like, uh-uh. Then suddenly it's real pricey and real costly and real uncomfortable. And then we're like, maybe it's not necessarily necessary that I bring this truth to you. Because what I love most is our beautiful relationship. And I want you to know that I love you. And when I bring a truth to you that does not meet your version of the truth you hold, then you will hold me in contempt for being judgmental, not loving, etc. And I don't want you to think I'm not loving. So the way I love you is to ignore what is uh, articulated in First Timothy as sound doctrine. We'll get there. Okay, so that was last week, right? Now what... Paul is going to do is he's it's, it's almost as though when he laid that on the table and we knew last week already this is going to get a little complex now Paul's going to launch right into okay so so here's 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 how we roll here's why truth and sound doctrine matter so much because it is our well-being if we live by God's truth but he's also going to say but be real real careful because if misused even the truths of God if misused if wrongly placed if wrongly understood, then they are worse than of no use. They are actually detrimental. And, and he's doing this by demonstrating that the teachers in the church in Ephesus are using God's word, his truth. They are speculating about it, making up, adding to, reshaping it according to their desires, they are teaching it with all sorts of wonderful speculation so they can be honored as great thinkers and teachers. And then they are calling the church into behaving according to their speculations so that they have a measured means to hold people to so that they can establish their authority. Did you catch all that? If not, podcast. Okay. So, Basically, they are using the law and the teaching of the law for their own gain, their own authority, their own pride, their own uh, uh, affirmation. And Paul's like, very bad. One, because it's you using it and misusing it. But two, whenever we do, it doesn't go well because what we get is not God's truth. Okay, so that's where we're at. Now, Paul is going to jump into this because... What one might suspect if you are reading the beginning of this letter without going on is that what Paul is saying is that the law, what the false prophets are using to bring rules and regulations to people to establish their authority and their incredible intelligence, what, what, what we might think is that Paul's saying is that the, the law is, is not helpful. It's not good. It's, it's not necessary anymore. Right? Because, because the law is out of an old story in the Old Testament, and we now have a new law, the law of the Spirit, the law of Christ. And so the old law is useless. Don't use it. That's what you might suspect. Except Paul always, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes, I know what you're all going to think, so I'm going to remedy that so that you don't accidentally think wrongly of what I mean. So grab your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. That's where we're going to jump in right now to see where Paul takes us next. Now, before we start reading the verse and verses that we're going to cover, I just want to um, perhaps give you some context of what's going on inside of my head so that you know if you see me being a little like overly bouncy today and anxious in the sense of what we're traveling through, you will know why. I have calculated this week in, in working through this passage, a minimum of seven sermons that are out of this passage alone. We're only going to do one. So one in my head already, I'm like, don't preach all seven. Because <laughs> we all have to go home before midnight. And so I'm like, oh, I, but I, but I, so already I'm like, oh gosh, Renault, stay true to the one beautiful thing that the intent of this particular passage holds. The reason there are seven or more in here is because we are watching a progression take place, not only within a single letter like First Timothy, which you'll see today, 
Paul will progressively take a statement, then say something more, say something more, say something more. And by the time we're done, what he said at first, which seemed like a standard simple sentence, will have 90 layers of beauty to it. So there is going to be a progression of even learning through this passage that Paul brings the fullness of what he means when he starts it. But remember, Paul has also written letters now Uh, progressively throughout his journey with Jesus, letters like Galatians, uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, and each of these letters, uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, have been Paul's wrestle uh, as the Holy Spirit inspired him to, uh, to have a particular reality of our life informed by the gospel. You with me? Legalism informed by the gospel, Galatians. Lawlessness informed by the gospel, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, persecution and suffering informed by the gospel, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, uh, the beauty and simplicity of the gospel, Ephesians, the complexity and wonder and depth and theology of the gospel, Romans. Paul's been doing this. So you should expect that by the time he's writing a letter like this to Timothy, not to the church, his disciple, Timothy, he's not explaining a bunch of stuff. He's writing a single sentence, but his expectation is that Timothy understands when he writes that sentence, the 50 sermons that he's preached to Timothy and written about in other letters that that sentence means. And we have to try to stay simple. When I'm like, okay, sentence one, three sermons, here we go. Because there's such depth and beauty and theology in this that is so critical. But we are going to cover today what is most critical and what is Paul's intent of this particular passage, even though he has all these pieces in it. Okay, so that was just a little confession of all the craziness going on inside of my head. So if this feels all over the place a little bit, I apologize ahead of time. I hope it won't, but let's see what happens. Okay. Now, we know that the law is good. Verse 8. So what do we establish right off the bat? Does Paul think the law is the problem? No, does he think the law is in any way not good? No, because he just like, just plain states it. Now we know, he doesn't say, we think, he's like, we know the law is good. He's saying it in response to, boy, these people are using the law badly, misinterpreting the law, speculating about the law. But what do we know about the law? It is It is good. So the problem is the false teachers. The problem is not the law. The law is good. But it is particularly good only when it is used lawfully. How do I know? Because he writes it next. It's super simple. If one uses it lawfully. Now the word here, lawfully, can also mean rightly, right? So just when you're doing something lawfully, you're doing something rightly. So he's saying, when the law is used rightly for its purpose, then the law is helpful and good and wonderful. When the law is not used rightly, then the law is going to cause all sorts of issues, just like everything else not used rightly when we humans use it wrongly. The problem will never be the law. It will be our understanding of its right use. And so Paul, you can imagine, is about to unpack for us some of that clarity of the right use of the law because the false teachers are using it wrongly, creating a legalism within the church that is stifling to the gospel and creating a a, a wrong authority structure and pride that is wrong. He's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And so he now begins the journey of us understanding what the law then was for. Understanding this, he says, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So here's a great example of a sentence that's just such a simple sentence. And there's three sermons I can preach because the theology of the reality that the law is not necessary or helpful necessary to someone who's perfect, someone who's just, someone who's perfect doesn't need the law. Because they're perfect. And when they're perfect, that includes perfect relationship with the one who is the law. So you don't need the law because you're perfect. So it's like the law was not created for humans 
that were perfect. That's why God didn't create Adam and Eve. And then his next conversation is, here's the book of all the rules. Stick to them because they were what? Perfect in a what kind of relationship with him? Perfect relationship with him. And so they did not need the law because they had him and they had justice. So when he uses the word just here, he's not defining the word like we define it. You know, people that are generally fair don't need the law. No, 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 no. He's using the word just here, overarching perfection. The humans that are perfect don't need the law. So the law was created, written, displayed, and not created as in it wasn't something that it was. What is the law? It is the put into words reality of what righteousness is. You with me? The law comes and says, you, if you are not perfect, not aligned in perfect relationship with God, may not know what is helpful, right, good, just. And the opposite end of that is deadly, unhelpful, terrible. So here's the law, so you can know. So the first purpose of the law was, hey, humans, you seem confused about what is now good and right because you got all this other stuff in your head and you assume yourself to be gods creating your own rightness. So allow me, God, to just verbalize for you exactly the difference, the law. Now, we find out through other parts of scripture, here we are again, a single sentence that Paul is assuming Timothy will understand all the depths to. We find out in other parts of scripture that the law, its purpose if you just kind of look at it for a second, is not only to show us what's right and wrong, but then to be our schoolmaster, in other words, to help us live rightly, right? Because if you have the law and you know what's right and wrong, then you will live rightly. Except that Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter eight, and he said this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for us who are in the law. No, he didn't say that, just FYI. He said, in Christ Jesus, because what the law of the spirit of life did in setting us free, that's the gospel, the work of Jesus, the law could not do insofar as it was weakened by the sinful nature. So he says, what condemns the human race is that once the law shows us what's right and wrong, it then also demands rightness, but we can't give it rightness because we are not just and perfect. So who was the law for? The humans that are not perfect. And he puts it this way, the lawless and disobedient. But just in case we simply experience the reality of our not justice as simply lawless and disobedient. It's, those are action words, right? They kind of behave lawlessly. They behave disobediently. He's now going to add identity to the issue. He's going to bring it down to nature. Watch this. He's like, the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners. Ooh. He's like, I'm not just talking about your behaviors. I'm talking about what's right here in your heart, the ungodly and the sinners. Watch this. Watch this. Uh, for the unholy and profane. He's like, look, the, the kinds of humans that are unholy and profane, ungodly and, and, un, and lawless and disobedient, those folks, it, it, it's for them that the law was given. Now watch this. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. So now he's going to start a list. I'm saying, he's going to start a list. This list is not exhaustive, FYI, because that would be a long long list, okay? Uh, nor is this list full of intent. Like he's choosing very specific things that he wants to put on here so that he can kind of make a point. His point in this list is not the list itself. His point is just to offer out of the book of Leviticus, actually, because he's talking about the law and he's talking to false teachers that have elevated the law to where it does not belong. So he's just referencing that law and saying, you know, the kinds of people that do the things that the law says are not good. So this is just a simple list of some obvious things that 
obviously are not tied to the truth of God and obviously are not part of the helpful doctrine and law of God, right? That's all this list is. So let's take a look at it. It's a super simple, obvious list, not exhaustive. Here's some examples, right? People that beat their fathers and mothers. I'm like, okay, check. I got that. Fairly obvious. For murderers. Okay, good. So when the person cuts me off on the road, I don't get to shove them off the road into a tree and have them die so we have less bad drivers. Like we all know, okay, that's just, you know, obviously murder, not not help, not, not good, not, yeah. Uh, the sexually immoral. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, granted lots of definitions of that, but in general, let's just keep the terminology. Uh, yeah, that obviously Yep, belongs on the list, and, you know. And then uh, the 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 men who practice homosexuality, like like that one. And then the enslavers, you know. Oh, yeah, okay, people that sl- enslave other people and, and liars. I mean, we all know parents, right? Lying not helpful when we do it to our spouses, each other, or other people when our kids do it to us. So that's definitely one. And and then prejud- uh, 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 perjurers, and and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So it's, it's just, a, just a simple list uh, of things that are not of God, except, except that it's not. Except that it's not. Because on this list, there's this odd little statement that ties into a particular cultural context in which we live. Sermon number three. Right? We're not going to go there because you're like, you're going to skip it or we're going to do this. I'm like, yeah, good question. The answer is Neither. You're like, what do you mean? So, so isn't this interesting? Because now it takes what we preached last week, that sort of, this is going to get fairly complex. And it suddenly lays that complexity right in front of us in our cultural context. Because in many cultural contexts, nothing on this list would have seemed out of place as far as something that isn't right and doesn't belong on this list. But in our cultural context, since our culture, including the culture within the church, perhaps in some real high motive of wanting to engage in love, has redefined the realities of this particular issue. That the issues of our sexual preferences and our realities of same-sex attraction and all that in our culture is not defined as something that belongs on this list. So now we have a dilemma, don't we? Because it's on this list. And so now we begin our crazy journey of saying, What does it mean that it's on the list? Does it mean what we think it means on the list? And so we start digging in and studying. And what we want at first is to be able to come and say, which you're waiting for me to say, I know it, is to say, we've studied this and what you think it means, it doesn't mean. So take a deep breath. We don't have to face the reality of awkward conversations with one another and our culture, because actually this means something totally other than our culture's version of, for example, homosexuality. Every time I say the word, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you get sweaty. This is going to be hard. So I want to tell you it doesn't mean that. I want to tell you, oh, good news. Our culture's version of this isn't what this is talking about. But I can't. Because we've studied this thing inside and out. And I can't. It's on this list. And so now here we sit and we're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Because the aim is love and we've just been given an impossibility well there goes the aim oh well so we have an option we ignore it on the list in other words we bury it somewhere so that it ends up in conversation toward end of life you know that's the last conversation i'll have with you right before we both die or or we change it to mean something other than it means and we are experts at both but what paul is saying here not about this list or about this issue, because remember what I told you? The list isn't the point. What he's saying is that when anything is stated in scripture as something that opposes the way of God, the truth of God, the sound doctrine of God, it is our responsibility and our calling to make sure we don't compromise sound doctrine. Why? Because if we do, we do not love well the people we're trying to love. And the aim is love. Now, stick with me for a second here. Little bit of a sermon. Sorry, we're going to get back to the main point in a second. But here's the deal, right? 
So when we come at this in, for example, this particular issue of how do we deal with the culture that stands so differently and even within the church, how do we do this? Here's what Paul is going to show us. Okay, sound doctrine. You saw it in the passage there or anything that opposes what? Sound doctrine. The actual translation of sound doctrine there in the Greek is healthy doctrine or, or life-giving doctrine. So what Paul's trying to say to us is not rightness. Listen to what I just said. What Paul is not trying to say to us is rightness matters. What he's saying to us is that anytime God's truth is lived in and lived by, what will the end result of our life be? Healthy, life-giving. It will be what it's supposed to be. But what if it doesn't feel like it's going to be? I know. It's insane when things God says seems to take well-being from us. And what Paul's saying is, church, listen to me. You know Jesus and you know his character and you know his love. You are belonging to him now. That's the audience I'm talking to. So remember, if he says something's good for us, it's what? Good for us. What if it doesn't seem good for us? I know it's super hard. Kind of like I tell my kids all the time when I'm telling them something I know is good for them. Like, you just, you just lock me down. You're a prison guard. You want nothing good for me. And I'm like, thankfully, the good news is I don't need you to understand how this isn't good for you for me to be able to hold my ground because I care about you. See, my easy move is not to hold my ground. Because then we'd be friends, no more fighting, and we can just have a grand old time, and you will suffer for it. You just don't know it yet. But because I love you, I'm not doing that. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, the reason sound doctrine or healthy doctrine or life-giving doctrine matters so much if our aim is love is that when we love with anything but God's truth, we may think we're loving with something that's going to make that person better, but we're actually not. And the way we know we're actually not is not by what we think, feel, prefer, have come to conclude. It's because the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, creator and sustainer of all things who has revealed himself knows what we don't. And when he says, this is not helpful, then we've got to believe that and walk into it. Now, if we're going to do that, what Paul's also saying is, if this ever becomes about rightness, about rightness, then we've actually missed the point. Because it's not about rightness. It's about that it is life. And so just buckle up. It's getting super uncomfortable. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so, you know, we live, we live in this time where, you know, our nation has taken a, a turn for the worse and, you know, it's being robbed from us by Hollywood and it's being robbed our, from us by all the atheist people and it's being robbed from us by all the agendas that are out there. And then when we start using language like that, what do we start doing? We feel all protective over our nation and its foundations and its godliness. Why? Because we want it back. We are guarding the wrong thing because we will not love the people that we feel like are stealing from us what is ours. God's call to us was not to guard a philosophy or guard a nation or guard a theology so that we can live in the wonder of being in a Christian nation. Do I want all of that? Of course I do, because who is it good for? Thank you. Say it louder. Everyone, not just us everyone. So I want that, but I want it for who? Everyone. In fact, no, no, I don't want it for everyone. I'm going to be a little more honest here. I actually want it for them because I already have everything I'll ever need. I don't need a nation that's awesome. I'd love one, but I don't need one because I have who? Jesus. So this is going to get, oh gosh, I'm going down the wrong sermon here. It's okay, Renaud, stick to it. Almost there. I've been given an extra 10 minutes, so buckle up. Here we go. We're going to get to the point in a second. Because it all comes together. It all comes together, but this matters. So there's another word on this little list that you just missed because you assumed it to be true because it is true. But when you understand what Paul writes in other sections, it becomes a confusing word. We'll get back to it when we're in later parts of Timothy and other parts. Paul puts the word slavery on this list. Did you notice that? Did anybody like for a second, like, I, I don't know, man, I feel like this slavery is a good thing. Did anybody like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go tell my friends like slavery is bad. No, nobody felt that way, right? Because slavery's what? 
bad, except that Paul on multiple different occasions will write stuff or say stuff to people who are under the inappropriate authority of another human and tell them to go do certain things that seem to suggest that Paul thinks slavery's fine. He told Onesimus, who escaped from his slave master, to go back and say, sorry, I escaped. I shouldn't have. I've come to know Jesus and I want to make this right. And Onesimus is like, he's going to re-enslave me. And Paul's like, maybe. I mean, I hope not. I'll write a letter, but maybe. And, and hey, uh, slaves, when you're dealing with your masters and you carry Jesus, now deal with them in this way. What? Paul thinks slavery's okay. No, no. Paul is calling us as Christ followers into the craziest space where on the one hand, when there is a sound doctrine, a healthy doctrine, a truth of God that we need to carry and bring to the table and love and gentleness to people who will feel like we are not loving them by the very nature of holding to it. We are called to pay the price if necessary of the relational carnage and the contempt into which we will be held. Why? Because we love who? Jesus, yes, good, excellent. That's not the wrong answer, but also them, also them. With whose love? His. So when we want our love to come to the table because our love is safer, he says, don't, please do that. Bring my love to the table, which includes my healthy doctrine. So we're called to that. That's already like, whoo, but never for rightness, only because we actually care about those people. But he's also saying this to us. And whenever you have determined what is just and right and good and what is absolutely a right of yours, be ready to lay it down for the sake of the gospel. Because being right or having what you deserve is a complete unnecessary reality anymore because who do you have? That was the right answer. Jesus. And Jesus is almost enough, right? Someone was like, oh, you had almost. No, he's not almost enough. He's totally enough. So what right do I still need for my well-being? Do I need the right not to be enslaved? Now you guys are going to podcast this. I mean, and you're going to say, Renault said that people should be enslaved. Here's what, I did. Here's what I will say, and I'll say it unapologetically. If me being enslaved would advance the gospel, if me being enslaved would bring somebody to know Jesus, and God said to me, go do that. Are we not a people who have Jesus now and would be willing even at that insanity to be able to say, God, whatever you want. Paul wrote it this way. Don't you understand? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live. I live by faith for him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So even if death is what comes, even if every right I have on this planet, every justice I should be the recipient of, I am not. And I lay myself into your injustice for the sake of winning your heart. As long as my aim is love, then I am called to lay down my rights. When necessary, I'm called to bring truth, even though it'll be costly when necessary. As long as I do neither of those out of the attitude of what is right, but I do it out of the attitude of what I'm the recipient of in Jesus. I don't hold to my rights because they're right. And I don't hold you to rightness because it's right. Because if you don't, you'll steal my nation. I hold you to God's truth gently as I can each other and the world in a different way because it's good for you. And I lay down my rights whenever it's good for you. That's a lot of a sermon. That's not even the point of this entire passage. But it kind of is. It kind of is because watch what happens next. This is now when Paul takes everything I've just said. Sorry, Paul, I got ahead of you. And now brings it into this beauty. So look at this. Um, in accordance, so verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So what he's saying is sound doctrine, remember? We want, to, we want to bring nothing that opposes sound doctrine and sound doctrine always in the light of the gospel. So he's saying the law doesn't stand alone anymore. It's now always in the light of the gospel. The law is good insofar as it can bring something beautiful to us when we are already recipients of the gospel. Watch this. Now he's going to unpack that. So verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he 
judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So I I love that Paul's now suddenly transitioning, feeling a bit shocking in the transition, but it's not at all. He's about to tie some things that actually give us the means by which we're going to live in what he just called us to. He says, "So, so let's take me, he says. Man, I am super grateful that I have the strength to be able to live this calling out. I mean, I'm needing to write to you about sound doctrine, I'm about to have all sorts of hard conversations with the people, uh, but but man, I have a deep love for the people, for the people of, of Ephesus, for the people. So I'm I'm super grateful for the strength God's given me, for His calling on my life, and for Him judging me faithful. Now it could sound like what Paul's saying is because I was faithful, He gave me these things. But P- Paul's going to remedy that in a second. What Paul's saying is, I can't believe He judged me faithful and gave me this calling and transformed me into somebody I was not. Because look what, he's, look what he's saying. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So Paul just took that little list he made and he pulled some of them off the list. Not the weird ones. That weird meaning that we're not sure if they're right or wrong. He pulled the big ones that none, none of us are disagreeing with. I was a murderer. When he says persecutor, he doesn't mean like I, 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 I posted on social media some, some really inappropriate things about someone and deeply hurt their feelings. Not that I'm saying that that's not a big deal, but he just went and murdered uh, women, children, kids that follow Jesus. And if he couldn't murder them, he just stick them in jail. Hmm. So he didn't, he didn't post? No, no, no. He, he killed. Okay, it's big. I, who was doing that, I want you to know, I, I can't believe that God still judged me faithful. In other words, m- made me faithful and called me to this. Now he's going uh, to explain that. But, but I received mercy. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, you might again say, oh, I get it. So what Paul's saying is the reason he was a recipient of the mercy of God is because he didn't know what he was doing. Did you, did you read that? Like, I, I, I was ignorant. I didn't, I didn't realize I was doing all these things that were like persecutor, murderer, insolent, uh, opposer of Jesus. I, I didn't know. And because I didn't know, he showed me mercy. What would that then suggest? Well, as long as you don't know that you did bad things and you were just doing them accidentally or kind of unknowingly, then Jesus will give you mercy. But if you're one of those people that you know you're not supposed to do it and you do it anyway, you won't get God's mercy. You could take that from this, except for the next few sentences that Paul's going to write. And then you're like, oh, didn't mean that. Paul is going to remedy that wrong ideology in a second by when he explains why he's the recipient of God's mercy. But before we go there, the question that emerges is why would Paul write this then? Why would Paul put a confusing sentence into here saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I didn't even, I didn't even know what I was doing and I was doing these bad things. Okay. Pay attention. Sermon number five and a half. Okay. What Paul's been trying to prove all along in this little teeny tiny passage is this. When the law is misused, right? It is, it is unhelpful. It can only be helpful when it is clearly used within the context of the gospel. In other words, the law is not complete until you know Jesus. And without Jesus, the law is useful to our nation. I mean, useless to our nation, useless to us, useless to any real transformation. We can conform people to things, but there's no transformation. The law cannot transform us. It cannot make us well. It cannot bring us health outside of Jesus. But once we know Jesus, then the law is fulfilled, completed, all those things Jesus said. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, complete it, finish it, make it useful. Then it becomes something powerful. Now look what Paul said. Allow me to use an illustration. There are those people that are lawless. I just described myself as one of them. And yet God showed me mercy, judged me faithful, made me faithful, showed me mercy, mercy when I was the murderer. But let's, let's take a look at the other end of the spectrum. When I was living faithfully by the law of who? God. Paul wrote in other, in other settings. Remember, he wrote, I dare you to bring me a Pharisee that knows the law better than me. Bring him. Bring him. And I dare you to bring me a Pharisee that was more zealous about this law than me. Bring him. 
I dare you to bring, he even dared to say this. I mean, can you imagine? Wow, I still can't believe Paul wrote this. Uh, that, that he said, as far as the law, I lived. He actually used the word like flawlessly. So he's saying, did I live by the law essentially perfectly from his vantage point? And was I zealous for it? And did I know it better than any other Pharisee before me? And yet it misled me. Let me say that again. And yet it misled me. It directed my zeal in all the wrong places. I totally missed Jesus and all of the prophecies in the law. So how useful is the law without Jesus? It's deadly because it condemns us because we can't live up to it. And even when it shows itself to us, we do not have the wherewithal to understand it rightly. And so we will be misguided in our use of it into a legalism that will lead to the same horrible means by which we treat people. We will persecute them, judge them, and condemn them instead of loving them. So lawlessness might feel like love, but it's not. And legalism might feel like love, but it's not. The law might be great if you have it, but it's not. And the law might be great if you don't have it, but it's not. And so Paul says, here's where it's got to start. If you don't know Jesus, ignore everything else I'm saying because it's all useless. It is the mercy of God, the redemptive work of Jesus that changes everything. And when that's changed, then and only then can we be called into these incredible things. So a reminder, Timothy is not being written to the world out there. The book of 1 Timothy is being written to a disciple of Paul for a church of people that say they follow Jesus. The context of all this is for who? It's us. We are called to this. We don't get to hold the rest of the world to this. They need Jesus. We need this because we already know Jesus. And he's saying, we want you to live for Jesus now. Watch this. Oh, watch this. Paul writes this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, those people that needed the law and the law did nothing for us but to condemn us, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, welcome, I'm on the list. If you are, we're together. So we need Jesus. But I received mercy for this reason. Here, Paul's going to clarify. Was it because he was deemed faithful? Was it because he didn't realize he was doing bad things? No, watch. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, in other words, the foremost uh, person of guilt of sin, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, look at me. There is no more undeserving human on the planet than me. I don't think Paul's right, but you begin to feel more and more like that as you explore the mercies of Jesus because you see the depths of your depravity and misguidedness, whether you are lawful or not. And you just are in awe that Jesus would ever bother to save you by dying. And he says, look at me. Jesus saved me, a murderer who was doing it by using his law unlawfully, inappropriately, and in a misguided way to do terrible things. I had both terrible things. I was a direct opposition to Jesus himself. He should have struck me down. But he saved me. Deemed me faithful. Not because I was, because I was unfaithful. And strengthened me to the calling. And so what is Paul saying? Do you want life? Do you want transformation? Do you want the well-being that comes from all these things we're saying? You will have none of them outside of Christ. But in Christ, you will not only have them all, but the law will become your friend, teaching you more of the beauty of God's way so that you would know more of life, light, and freedom while on this planet as you wait for the progressive wonder of the transformation that the Spirit of God is affecting in us so that we might be like Him. We, folks, we are called into whatever cultural context we're called into or whatever church we have of people around us to hold to sound doctrine, God's truth, and effectively and gently in love continue to exchange that but to do it always with the motive of love for the people we're talking to, not rightness, 
And we need to remember that as important as sound doctrine is, because without it, we cannot love rightly. If we try to have sound doctrine be enough to love rightly without having Jesus' mercy first, then sound doctrine is as useless as anything else. Because it is actually only by the mercy of Jesus and his love for us that we are compelled to love others rightly. And then sound doctrine becomes our gift by which we can do it and our gift to know what our rights are so we can lay them down for the sake of others when necessary. And our story begins. Two things, and then I'll pray. Because you're like, I think you went over your 10 minutes. I'm like, only four minutes over my 10 minutes that I had over my 30 minutes, so we're fine. <laughs> Two things. One, the complexity in our cultural context by which we are to know and discern how to bring these truths that are God's truths into a culture that opposes them and will feel unloved by the very nature of us bringing them when all we're really wanting to do is love is complex and difficult. And we know you and I need equipping to that so that we will not accidentally love badly when we're trying to love well just by the very nature of the actions we produce. What is a right conversation in your workplace? How do we engage? What if my friend? All this stuff. So we are over the next uh, few months, I'm not talking about nine or 10, I'm talking about you know two or three. We are working on a forum that we will put together here that will not be on a Sunday morning that you'll be invited to if you'd like for us to dialogue through the complexities of how we take a truth of God that opposes a cultural truth that says this is love and we say actually not. And how do we come into that in a manner worthy of the gospel that will as best we can demonstrate love instead of hatred? We'll navigate all of that together because we know that it's not as simple as just go do it. You're like, I don't know how. I know it's really hard. We'll figure it out together. Two, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you're not sure you know Jesus, you're like, I, I've been in church for a while, I, I, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it looks like to have this intimate, right relationship with Jesus or whatever. If you're online watching, if you're here watching, can I just say something I, I, again? out of this passage and so many others, but just stirred in me out of this passage again. I beg you. I beg you. Take the time to explore this Jesus. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a character in a book. He's not a religious figure that we can kind of learn from. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe who came to this planet. Paul would write this as a right and true saying and truth that he came to this planet so that he could live, die, and rise from the dead for sinners so that they might be made alive so that the law and righteousness that is for their well-being might actually become an asset because they are already the recipients of life itself, Jesus. I beg of you, take the time to explore him. I beg of you, say, I, 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 I want to know what it means to follow Jesus because if you don't, there is no amount of lawlessness or self-governance or self-philosophying or self-anything that will get you anywhere that is in any way life, though it might feel like it does for a season. And there's no amount of religious activity, lawfulness, and rightness that will do any good for your soul. It will become the burden and bane of your existence because you cannot live up to it. And you will die either way. But Jesus... Jesus said, if you come to me and you believe in who I am and you trust me with your salvation, your life, I will give it to you and you will be saved. That's why he said, he saved me first, Paul says, despite my insanity, so I might be an example to all those who will come and believe in him and have eternal life because they will know if you saved Paul, <laughs> who was both fully lawful and fully terrible, then certainly your mercy is available to me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the graciousness by which you are consistently and constantly leading us into your way, despite it even being often difficult for us to grasp and or to submit to because it seems to oppose what feels like might be our well-being. Thank you that you have called us as a church 
to love one another well and to love the world well, not to be concerned of what they're taking from us or what we're taking from each other, but actually to be concerned for each other and for the world. And the best way we can be concerned for each other and for the world is to consistently grow in the knowledge of your truth, the submission to it, and then to bring that truth to each other as encouragement and exhortation, and then to gently and rightly bring it to the world, not first as law, but first as your mercy. Bring them you and you alone so that they might know your love and then they would grow in your truth as we are. God, for all those here that know you, they have you, Spirit of God, they know you, Jesus. Me, us, stir in us. The conviction of soul that says, where have we been so bought into rightness that we have forgot that we love the people that feel like our enemies? And where have we ignored rightness because we're so afraid that we'll come across unloving. God, neither of those are a, are a good way to love, your way to love. So for those of us that like to ignore truth because we like to be safe in relationship, give us the boldness when it is appropriate and right to be honest and truthful and con confrontational when necessary. And for those of us that are confrontational at the blink of an eye because it's good and right, Help us to remember why we're doing that. That it's about actually the love you have for the person we're confronting, not because they're wrong. God, we have much to learn as a church, much to learn as a people. Lead us there. For those here that don't know you, God, in this room or online, Spirit of God, speak now to them simply this. You cannot and will not ever know and imagine a greater love then what you will find, I will be for you. God, I know that that has been true for me in the long journey I've had with you. I pray you'd whisper it to them in a way that would overcome all the doubts that they have that you might not love them well. God, would you stir in them a curiosity, a desire, an awakening to want to know you more and explore you more. Just with us quietly sitting here in this room, we very rarely do this, I know, but I just, I just want to give opportunity even for you in this room so that I can pray rightly for you and so that we can have opportunity to engage. If you're here and you don't know if you know Jesus, you're not sure or you're sure you know you don't, and you're simply sitting here going, you know what, you know what, I, I, I want to know more. I, I want to understand more. I want to pursue more of what it means to follow Jesus. I don't know where that will lead me. I don't even know if I want to follow him, but I want to know more. Would you just do me a favor if that's you and just... Uh, gently and quickly just raise your hand so I can pray for you and so that I thank you thank you I see you thank you yes thank you thank you yes thank you man I, I would I would do just about anything to come and sit with you and and take everything that's in me that he has shown me and give it to you so you can see what adventure waits before you if you follow Jesus so for those that raise their hand and for the others here that sense that Thank you, God, show them the wonders of a pilgrimage with you. Show them the wonders of your saving grace toward them. Bring them to yourself like you have in such mercy for me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.